The scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 37 through 46. If you'd like to open your Bibles and read along with me, it's from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 37 through 46. There's a pew Bible in front of you, the black book there. It can be found on page 76 in the New Testament. Let's hear the word of the Lord. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread of, that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Continuing on with a difficult uh, passage to uh, preach and to receive, maybe not as difficult to understand what Jesus is saying, but difficult to receive what Jesus is saying. So we need to pray and ask for the Lord to bless us, give us grace as we come to his word together. So would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, our hope is that your power will keep us. Your gracious purpose is to keep us until we are home with you at last. That's our confidence, Lord, to continue walking and living the Christian life, to continue moving forward in obedience to your will. It's not that we trust in ourselves to get it done, but we trust in your saving grace to accomplish all of your saving purpose in our lives until the very day of Christ's glory. Father, that's what we're seeing here in John 6. That's this wondrous, wondrous purpose that you've made known to us in the gospel. That you're taking a people for your own possession. And you will ensure that none of them are lost. None of them perish. You've guaranteed that, Lord, by giving that people to your son, placing them in his hands and entrusting him to do everything necessary to bring them home with him to glory. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and you lived the life we could not live. You pleased the Father in all that you did. You obeyed his will perfectly in our place. And you willingly and gladly laid your life down for the sake of your people so that you might redeem them from their sins and bring them to everlasting glory with yourself. Thank you for your resurrection, Lord, and sending the Spirit, interceding for us in heaven, working in us your will, faithfully moving upon our hearts to bring us into greater conformity to your likeness and promising that one day you will bring it to completion. Father, thank you that you will complete the good work you've begun. Please help us take to heart this good work that you've begun in, in our lives, Lord. If, if you have begun that work in our lives, I pray that we here this morning would rejoice in you as the saving God who has worked his wondrous deeds into our own hearts and lives. Lord, if we are not among those, if anyone in this room is not among those who can say confidently that you have begun this good work in them, then I pray that they would take heed to your word and they would seek your face that they would uh, acknowledge that, that now is the time to seek the Lord. Today is the day of salvation, that they would not harden their hearts against you, Lord, but they would declare with the psalmist that they are yours and that they would plead with you that you would save them. God, work your will in us and among us this morning. Let your presence be known. May your spirit richly dwell in us, and may that be made known by your word dwelling richly in each one of our hearts. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name, Father. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're coming back to Jesus' teaching in John 6. And uh, obviously we're picking up on where we left off last week. So if today you are offended or confused about anything that I say in relation to what I said last week, then go listen to the sermon from last week, and then you can put today in its proper context. We're walking through John 6, and in, in this particular section, Jesus is presenting what is often referred to as the, the doctrine of election. Um, and Jesus is presenting this teaching to this crowd in order to explain why it is that they are not yet willing to believe in him. Now, just as a brief word before we move on into uh, the rest of the sermon today, it was my intention to address questions that are related to the issue of election and to try to help answer some of the more common questions and struggles that people can have with this doctrine. It was my intention to get to that today. However, uh, I did receive too many questions than what were able to be addressed in the sermon this morning. Uh, and so next week we're going to come back to address at least six questions that, that I have in relation to this doctrine of election, and hopefully you will uh, come back and hear the answer to those questions before you uh, harden your heart against me and, uh, and, and skip out of here. Today we're going to continue looking at Jesus' explanation for why this crowd was not yet believing in him, which is simply this. They were not believing in him because it had not been granted 
to them to believe in him. That's John 6, 65. We will see that clearly as we walk through the message this morning. So let's start with a little recap just to make sure that we're all on the same page before we move into uh, this, this new verse in verse 45 that we have not looked at yet. So just, just for the sake of recap, we remember in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And we notice that the proof Jesus is offering to show that he truly is bread from heaven is that he truly satisfies the souls of all who come to him with heavenly life. So the proof and the evidence that Jesus truly is the bread sent down from the Father, or sent down by the Father from heaven, the proof that he is that bread is that he truly satisfies the souls of those who come to him with heavenly life, communion with the Father, and life everlasting. Now the problem is not everyone experiences that satisfaction in Christ. Not everyone finds Jesus to be satisfying the hunger in their souls or the thirst that they have in their hearts. Even this crowd, which had seen and experienced Jesus doing so many amazing things on their behalf, he multiplied the fish, he multiplied the bread, they ate their fill of the loaves. They experienced the, wonder, <clears throat> the wonders that Jesus was doing. And yet Jesus can still say in verse 36, I've said to you, you have seen me doing these things, and yet you still do not believe. The question that this section in John 6 is bringing to our attention is why is that the case? <clears throat> why is it that this crowd, in spite of everything they had seen, were still not willing to believe in Jesus as the Son of God? And we know the crowd's answer to that, right? You remember that from verse 30. The crowd's answer after Jesus says, if you want eternal life, you have to believe in me. The crowd's answer back to him is, well, what sign do you do so that we may see it and believe it, right? That's the common understanding. That's, that's how most human beings respond to the claims of Jesus. Well, when I see it, then I will believe it. But what Jesus says in verse 36 is that I've... I've already told you who I am. You've already seen me do signs, and yet you're still not believing. So seeing does not automatically equal believing, right? The crowd says, we don't believe in you yet because you haven't done enough to prove yourself to us. Well, when Jesus begins unpacking the reason why this crowd was not yet believing in him, he gives a different answer. We see in verse 60, uh, John 6, 65, the reason Jesus says they're not believing in him is because it had not been granted to them from the Father to believe in him. Now read the verse for yourself. Verse 65, he was saying to them, for this reason I said to you, no one can come to me, which is synonymous with believing in me in this chapter. No one can come to me, no one can believe in me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Now, personally, I just want to remind you, I know how difficult this teaching can be. Um, I wrestled through it for myself, and then once coming to convictions over it, I was asked to leave three churches because of it. Uh, with one pastor declaring from the pulpit, I will never worship the God of the Calvinist. I will never worship a God 
who is sovereign in the way that the Calvinists say he's sovereign. When he said that from the pulpit, my heart trembled for him. Because we don't worship the God of the Calvinists, we worship the God of Scripture. And right here in John 6, 65, Jesus himself says that something must happen to a person before that person is able to believe. And what must happen to that person for that person to be able to believe? It must be granted to that person to believe from the Father. Now, you can try and spin yourself out of that tackle all you want. But God's going to come down on you with the full weight of that truth one day. That he is ultimately sovereign. And, and this, is, this is what rubs people the wrong way. God is the sovereign one, and you are not. You are not in control. You are not in control of anything in your life. In this world, we live under the illusion that we can control something. We can control where our money gets invested. We can control what happens in our family lives. We can control our job situation. We can control and set ourselves up to be in control for retirement. We, we can order our lives in such a way that we remain in control of it all. And that extends even to our understanding of, of a relationship with God. We can be in control of that relationship with God. God is the passive one. He's the one sitting up in heaven and waiting upon us to make a decision. Will you have me or won't you? That's the way most people believe their relationship with God is like. That, they, that's, those are the terms under which they understand their relationship with God. God is just happy-go-lucky, waiting in the heavens, waiting on everybody to simply choose him. But that's not what Jesus says to us here, is it? Jesus says, it must be granted to you in order for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know how difficult this can be. But what I want to invite you to do is exactly what I have done in my own life exactly what countless others have done in their lives. I want you to simply hear what Jesus is saying and then submit yourself to it. Hear what he's saying and submit yourself to it. John says, John 6, 65, it's not because I haven't done enough that you're not believing. John 6, 36, you've seen. I've told you, and yet you're still not believing. No, the reason you're not believing is because it hasn't been granted to you by the Father. <clears throat> now, as, we're, as we were looking at last week, Jesus describes, he unpacks that truth in three ways from verses 37 to 45. And last week we looked at two of those ways. Let me just go over it by way of summary. First of all, he says in verse 37 that all who are given by the Father come to the Son. All who are given by the Father to the Son ultimately come to the Son. Verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, as we looked at last week, this is talking about what is often referred to as the doctrine of election. That Jesus is speaking of a certain specific group of people whom the Father is giving to him. And he looks, he, he states this in the context of a group of people who are not coming to him. They are not believing in him. They will not believe even though they've seen. And Jesus says, everyone whom the Father has given to me will come to me. 
So why is it that this crowd is not coming to Jesus? Why is it that they're not believing in Jesus? Well, according to verse 37, it's because they were not given to Jesus by the Father. Now, we saw the New Testament describes this group of people that God is saving and redeeming to the praise of the glory of his grace. We saw the New Testament describes this group in different ways. They are the called, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. They are the chosen, right? You can see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. They are the elect, uh, and uh, they are those who have been ordained to eternal life, Acts 13, 48. Now, Jesus says to the Jews, the reason you will not come to me and why you won't believe in me is not because I haven't done enough to convince you, but rather because you are not among those who have been given to me by my Father. So that's the first way he unpacks that. Second way is in verse 44, where Jesus explains even more clearly, all who are drawn by the Father come to the Son. All who are drawn by the Father come to the Son. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, notice those statements, right? Universal statements of universal inability. Right? You remember what no one is in Greek. It's, it's two words put together. One of them means no or not, and the other one is the number one. So not like written out, but number one. Not one person can come to me. Can, dunamis, come from the family of words dunamis. We get dynamite from that. The simple meaning of that word is power, ability, capability. No one has the capability to come to me unless something happens to that person first. And what is it that has to happen? You've got to be drawn by the Father or else you are not able to come. Now drawn, right? We saw last week, it doesn't simply mean to woo or merely to invite someone. It, it literally means to drag. Like you're dragging a fishing net. You're dragging fish in a fishing net into a boat up on the shore. James 2.6, the rich are those who are dragging believers into court. Uh, Acts 21, verse 30, the, the Jews grabbed a hold of Paul and they drug him or they dragged him out of the temple. Right? It's, it's, it's this forceful movement upon a person to make that person do or go where you want that person to go or do what you want them to do. So it's not, it's not a power of coercion, as we said. It's not like God twisting the arm. But it's an irresistible power of conviction that when the Father draws a sinner to come to Jesus, it's because he has convinced that sinner in his or her heart that Jesus truly is Lord and salvation is found in no other name but his. And out of that internal conviction, the person responds by believing. That's what it means to, to draw. And so this is why Jesus can say definitively, all that the Father gives me will come to me because all that the Father gives to the Son, the Father ultimately draws to the Son. All right? So that's where we ended last week. It was all recap, Okay? So if you're not convinced of anything I've said or if you're troubled by it, please go listen to the sermon from last week. And then you will, you'll hear more fully me, uh, my, my uh, teaching on that. All right, so now, before we look at the third way that Jesus describes why it is that these Jews are not coming to him, I want to address 
what some people will say about the meaning of the word draw or the meaning of the word six, uh, uh, of the verse, John 6, 44. Some will say in response to that verse, well, I agree. I believe that God has to draw a person in order for that person to be able to believe in his son. I agree with that. But I believe God draws everyone to his son and then enables them to make a choice as to whether they will believe. So the drawing that Jesus is talking about in John 6, is simply this quickening in the soul that basically brings a sinner to a point of neutrality. Where that sinner is brought out of their deep bondage and sin and is brought to a position where they are enabled by God to make a choice. Will you follow Jesus or won't you? Jacob Arminius, John Wesley would be some notable historical figures who have believed in this teaching. They say basically to draw means that God quickens a person's will just enough to enable that person to make a choice or to make a decision. So that ultimately to draw someone to his son simply means that God enables that person to choose whether or not he will come to Jesus. This is often referred to as prevenient grace, right? It's not, it's not saving grace. It's grace that works in a person's heart prior to saving grace. Not enough grace to save the person, but it's enough grace to enable the person to choose whether or not to be saved. Now, let me ask a question. Is that what Jesus is talking about in John 6, when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How do we know that? How would you explain that to a friend who believes in provenient grace in the way I've just described it? Well, I agree with you. I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying, and let me show you why. If you look with me, look with me at the end of verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, last day, we know what that's talking about, right? Last day is talking about the day of resurrection. John 5, 29, this, this day of resurrection where Jesus will raise up all of his faithful people in a resurrection of life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I will raise him up. Um, John 6, 39, we, or we know that raising up is, is the participation in that resurrection life. John 6, 39, it says, uh, Jesus is, is describing this using the same phrase, but it, I will raise it up on the last day. And how does he interpret what it means to raise that, that person up on the last day? He interprets that as nothing being lost. Okay, So to be raised up on the last day means you are not lost. Jesus has kept you. He has saved you, and he is allowing you and enabling you to participate in a resurrection of life. Do you follow that? 
Now, who does Jesus say he will raise up on the last day? Everyone? No, he doesn't say he's going to raise up everyone. He's going to raise up those who have been drawn by the Father. You see that. Just notice the pronouns, right? The he that is being drawn by the Father to come to the Son is the same he that the Son will raise up on the last day. So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So the same one that is being drawn is the one who is being raised. Now if prevenient grace is right... If that idea is right, and, and Jesus is talking in John 6, about a grace that God gives to everyone. He draws everyone in this way and then allows them to make a choice. Then who is getting raised up by Jesus on the last day, if that were true? Everyone. Because everyone whom the Father draws, the Son will raise up. There is absolute unity and harmony in the work of redemption that the Father is accomplishing and the Son is accomplishing. They're not at odds with one another. The Father's not drawing someone to Jesus that Jesus is not going to raise up at the end. No, the Father draws a person to Jesus because the Father has given that person to Jesus so that Jesus would save him or her. And so when that person comes to Jesus, as a result of the Father drawing that person, Jesus says, I will raise that person up on the last day so that none of them are lost. Just answer it, tell them to come on. Tell them to come here. They should be here. Or somewhere. Probably a telemarketer. So if the Father is indiscriminately drawing everyone with provenient grace, then everyone is going to be raised up by the Son on the last day, and welcome to universalism. Might as well stop preaching the gospel. I guess in some ways it would be be needed, right? Because you've got to be drawn by the Father under the hearing of the gospel in order to make your decision. But we know that in the Bible, uh, we, we know that the Bible does not teach that everyone is going to be raised up on the last day. John 5, 29, there is such a thing as a resurrection of judgment. Matthew 7, 13 tells us that there are many people who are going to enter through the gate of destruction. So not everybody's going to be saved. In fact, Jesus says in John 7, I think it's 21, not even everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but only those who actually did the will of his Father who is in heaven. Just to have an empty profession of faith does not mean that you are a believer. Your life must reflect the reality of the Spirit's work in applying the gospel to your heart and mind. Your life must be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, your profession is empty and worthless. That's what Jesus is saying in John 7. So we know that there are people who are not going to be raised up in the end. Even people who, according to provenient grace, would be seen as drawn by the Father. They're professing, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform mighty miracles? They would have been included among those who were drawn according to provenient grace. And yet even they will wind up in hell. So what is it in John 6, 44 that prevents us from seeing or understanding being drawn by the Father in the way that provenient grace would say that they are drawn by the Father. 
Well, according to John 6, if there are many who in the end will not be raised up in a resurrection of life, but are on the path to destruction, then what does that mean? If there are many who will not be raised up by the Son on the last day, then what does that mean of them? It means that they were not drawn to the Son by the Father. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son, because the Father will draw to his Son everyone that he gives. And the Son will honor his Father by raising up to eternal life every single sinner his Father has entrusted to him to save. Now, so that's point one and point two, right? The first and the second way that Jesus describes or unpacks what he means in John 6, 65, when he says, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. What he means is, no one can come to me unless they are given to me by the Father. No one can come to me unless that person is drawn to me by the Father. And there's a third way he describes that, and that's in John 6, 45. John 6, 45. All who are given to the Son will come to the Son, They are drawn by the Father to come to the Son. And then thirdly, we see that they are taught by the Father to come to his Son. Verse 45, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, this is really Jesus' explanation of what it means for a person to be drawn by the Father. What does it mean for a person to be drawn? It means that they are taught. It does not, uh, it does not mean that you have been drugged to the Son, kicking and screaming, right? God's not carrying you to Jesus the way I had to carry my daughter out of Menards that one day. Utterly against your will and desire, that's not how God draws you to his son. He draws you to his son by teaching you in your soul about the truth of his son. Convincing you of that truth where you have heard from the father and you have learned from the father. And having heard and learned from the father, you respond by coming. Your paradigm has been shifted, right? You see the truth in the way you never could see it before. And now there's no going back to the lie. The Father has taught you about the truth of His Son. And you respond by bowing in submission to that truth. Willingly and wholeheartedly. Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And notice that last phrase. What happens to every single person that receives the blessing of being taught by God? They come. That's obvious. It's right there in the passage. Everyone who is taught by God comes to Jesus. And so, in light of that, why is it then that these Jews in John 6 were not coming to Jesus? Why is it that they were not believing in Jesus? Was it because they simply had not been convinced? Jesus hadn't done enough to convince them. No, that's not it. No, Jesus says the reason they were not coming to him was because they were not being taught by God to come to him. 
According to Jesus, they weren't coming because they were not being taught by the Father. Now, Jesus does something fascinating in this verse, verse verse 45. And I think it's very uh, timely to see what Jesus does in this verse. There's something fascinating and theologically rich that happens in verse 45. And I want to try to make sure that we notice it. All right? You guys with me? In this verse, Jesus is quoting a promise of God from Isaiah 54, verse 13. Relating to the blessing that God would give to all of his covenant people in the new covenant. Remember, this is Isaiah 54.10. I don't have that slide up here, but Isaiah 54.10, it speaks of God's eternal covenant of peace that will be unbreakable, unshakable, that, that, that it will be like the days of Noah to Yahweh. He will, he will never again be angry at his people, and his covenant will never again be broken. And why is that? Because that covenant is built upon the perfect saving work that was accomplished by the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53 Right? So Isaiah 53, as you know, comes before Isaiah 54. So what's being described in Isaiah 53 is the foundation for the promises and the hope that God is giving to his people in Isaiah 54. Jesus, the suffering servant, the father laid upon his servant all the sins of his people. A substitutionary atonement was made possible through this suffering servant. The father took all the offenses, all the lawless deeds, all the sins of his people, his iniquity, their guilt, their shame. He dumped it upon the head of his son and then was pleased to crush the son under the judgment that his people deserved. So it's through this vicarious suffering of the servant that his people are justified and set free. That's the message of Isaiah 53, right? He's given himself up as a guilt offering. He sees his offspring, those those children, those spiritual children who would be born as a result of his saving work. He sees his offspring. He prolongs his days. He's, He's resurrected. He raises himself up from the dead. And then the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Right? That's that's Revelation 5. Jesus seated on the throne. A popping open each one of those seals on the scroll, bringing the Father's will to pass perfectly in his creation. That, that's all the message of Isaiah 53. And it's upon that saving work of the suffering servant that the new covenant of peace is, is founded and established. It's why that covenant will be unshakable, right? It's in the context of the promise of that new covenant that God says to all of his covenant people in Isaiah 54, 13, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Now, if you look in the context of Isaiah 54, when it says all your sons, who is the your speaking of? You may not know because you haven't looked at it. But it's speaking of the sons of Israel. All your sons, the sons of Israel, all your sons will be taught of God in the time of the new covenant. It's in this new covenant peace that all the sons of God's covenant people will be taught by the Lord. And Jesus says in John 6, 45, 
that that promise concerning the sons of Israel was being fulfilled in his life and ministry. As it was written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Jesus says that's happening right now. And what's shocking about it is that he quotes that verse in such a way as to make plain that the Jews to whom he's speaking were not included in that promise. Do you see that? Jesus says, as it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. And then he looks at these people and he says, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The fulfillment of Isaiah 54, 13 is realized in people hearing the gospel and coming to Jesus. And he says that to a group of people who are not coming to Jesus and are not believing in him. Therefore, they have not been taught of the Father. And by the way, aren't they the physical descendants of Israel? So here Jesus looks at these physical descendants of Israel, quotes to them a promise about the descendants of Israel, and says it doesn't include you because you are not being taught by the Father to come to me. Remember, let me go over this one more time, because this is really foundational. This is key. This is one of, those, one of those glimpses in John 6 where we begin to understand how to read the Old Testament. Remember what I've been saying. John 6 gives us Jesus' commentary on how it is that the entire Old Testament is talking about him. That's where John chapter 5 ends. And in John chapter 6, we have, we have expression and example after example showing us how it is that the Old Testament is all about him. Run over this again. Remember, who is Jesus speaking to? In John 6, he is speaking to the physical descendants of Israel. He is speaking to their physical sons, the physical sons of the old covenant people of God. But what is not happening for those old covenant people of God? The sons of those old covenant people. What is not happening? They're not being taught by God. But the promise was, all of your sons will be taught of Yahweh. Well, wait a second. Was God lying? Was he being unfaithful when he said all the sons of Israel will be taught of, of Yahweh? And then Jesus is here speaking to physical descendants of Israel. And he says, all the sons of God will be taught by him. But you're not being taught by him. What does that mean about the people to whom he's speaking? It means that they are not among the sons of Israel to whom this promise was made. Maybe you don't see that yet. I see a lot of blank stares. Jesus says, as it's written in the prophets, everyone, all the sons, all the sons of Israel, all the sons of the old covenant people of God will be taught of the Lord. Well, here Jesus is speaking to the descendants of the old covenant people of God, and they are not being taught of the Lord. So you've got one of two options. 
One, God is being unfaithful to his promise. Or two, the interpretation of that promise is different than what might be assumed. Is God lying? Are you sure? Are you positive? God is not lying when he says all the sons of Israel will be taught of the Lord. He's not lying when he says that, right? Then why is it that these physical descendants of Israel are not being taught of the Lord? Because they are not true Israel. They are not the sons of the new covenant to whom God made this promise. Now, I, I wanted to lay, this is, actually, this is why we couldn't get to the questions that were coming. Because this is a really significant and important truth and teaching that Jesus gives us here in John 6, 45. And you can just read over it so fast, pass by it, and not even realize what's being spoken here. I'm not going to go into all the details. But this has application for how we understand Modern-day Israel, doesn't it? This does. This has application for how we interpret all of those old covenant promises that were relating to the new covenant and the people of Israel and the sons of Judah. When we come to the New Testament, we find that all of those promises are being fulfilled in Christ and for everyone who is in Christ. Now, if you disagree with me, you're not going to hell. Though I know people who disagree with me who will say, I'm going to hell. Because I'm twisting the scriptures. I'm not twisting the scriptures. Am I spiritualizing the text here? Is it not Jesus who is drawing upon this promise in Isaiah 54? And using it as a reason to explain why these physical descendants of Israel are not coming to him. They're not coming to him because they're not being taught of Yahweh. It can't be because Yahweh's unfaithful or he has lied or has not fulfilled his promise to the children of Israel. No, Jesus, the Father is fulfilling that promise and he fulfills it by bringing every new covenant child, every spiritual descendant of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3, bringing every spiritual descendant of Abraham to Jesus under the banner and the terms of the new covenant. God is always faithful, even when every man is a liar, right? So no, God is not lying when he made that promise to, in Isaiah 54, 13. The fact that God was not teaching these Jews in John 6 to come to his son only means one thing. That that promise of Isaiah 54, 13 did not include them. Because, back to verse 37, right? Who is it that comes to the Son? All those who were given to the Son. Verse 44, who is it that comes to Jesus? Those who are drawn by the Father to come to Jesus. Verse 45, who is it that comes to Jesus? Those who are taught by the Father to come to Jesus. Now, the reason they were not coming to Jesus was because, as Jesus is expressing it here in John 6, 45, 
The reason they were not coming to Jesus was because they were not among the true sons of Israel to whom that promise of Isaiah 54, 13 had been made. Because they were not coming to Jesus. All true sons of Israel, all the true people of God, are those whom the Father gives to his Son, and they are those whom the Father draws to his Son, and they are those whom the Father teaches to come to his Son. That's, that is a true son of Israel. That is made up of both Jew and Greek, right? It's not replacement theology, just for those of you who have heard that phrase before. This is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. This is inclusion theology, where Gentiles are included with the sons of Israel now in the hope of the new covenant. So even though these Jews were physical descendants of Israel, they were not among those whom the Father chose to save and to entrust to his Son. And we know that because he was not teaching them to come to his Son. Now, moving on from that, it's very interesting, isn't it, to see how active God the Father is in the salvation of his chosen people. God the Father is giving them to his Son from eternity past, as we saw last week. He is drawing them to his Son drawing them to come to his son, and then he is teaching them to come to his son. And praise the Lord for that. Because if he had waited for me to come on my own will and volition, I would never have come. Now, I know there may be many objections to this reading or this understanding of John 6 going on in your mind, lingering questions. I wrote this last week before I made the invitation to send me those questions, so... Uh, I am planning next week to address some of those questions. If you have any questions in your mind that you have been thinking about throughout the week and you did not send to me, please feel free to send those to me. And uh, I want to make sure that I address them and, and that I am as helpful as possible uh, with the pulpit, pulpit ministry of Oak Ridge Community Church. So please send those questions to me if you have anything relating to election that you would want me to address. Again, email me by Wednesday, okay? All right, but as we end now, what I'd like to close on today is just a few ways that this teaching of God's sovereignty and salvation ought to encourage all of us, everyone in this room. So please pay attention and listen. You're included in everything I'm about to say, all right, no matter who you are. If you are a believer in this room, that is, if you hear the truth about Jesus Christ and you respond to his gospel by believing in him, by coming to him, then this teaching on election ought to encourage you in a couple of ways. Number one, it ought to encourage you to realize that to be a believer is an inestimable privilege that has been granted to you by God the Father. If you are an elect child of God, that is an inestimable privilege that has been entrusted to you. And you need to recognize it for what it is. And you need to own it for what it is and live in the fullness of hope and grace that that provides for you. The Father chose to save you from what you deserve. Just think about that for a minute. What do you deserve? You deserve His wrath. 
You deserve His justice. You deserve His fierce anger that is described and depicted for us in the prophets and in the New Testament and is ultimately seen in the demonstration of the wrath of the Lamb on the last day. That's what you deserve. You deserve to be an object of that wrath. And yet God has chosen of His own free will and gracious love to take you out from what you deserve and to keep you for Himself. He took you from where you were and brought you as a gift and as a prize to his son. Have you ever realized that about yourself, believer? You are, you are God the Father's reward that he has given to his son for the sake of his son's sufferings. You're not just some peon that he, he, he happened to just let skimp into the kingdom. You're the chosen object of his affections. You are his trophy given to his son, an expression of what his son has earned with his own sufferings. And you need to recognize that about yourself. The father determined in his heart that despite your obstinance and your sinfulness, despite what you deserve, he determined that he was going to save you and he was going to make you his. And so in light of that, how should you respond? You should respond by loving him with all of your life. No hidden corners, nothing in reserve. You should respond by laying everything before the altar of God and saying, Lord, I have been made such an object of this immense privilege. Lord, please help me live in such a way that is worthy of this calling with which I've been called. Help me love you. Help me worship you, Lord, with a full and true heart. Help me praise you for the fact that I am a Christian. You did not pass me by. You made me belong to Jesus because you chose to love me. Help me live in a way that demonstrates my thankfulness to you for that. The only way you're going to do that is when you recognize the glory of what truly happened when you became a believer. You know, most people's understanding and view of how to become a Christian ought to lead them to thanking themselves, not God. I thank you, God, that I was smart enough to choose to follow you. I thank you, God, that actually I thank me that I, was, that I chose to come to you and I chose to give you a chance. It was my will. It was my decision. Praise God. No, you're going to give God the glory that he deserves from your life when you recognize what truly happened when you became a Christian. God wasn't on the sideline waiting for you to put him in the game of your life. God is the king of glory, orchestrating all things towards the fulfillment of his eternal purpose, which includes your salvation, your salvation in time, in history, choosing to move upon you at the right moment. That's an amazing privilege. So how should we respond? Thomas Watson says, make your whole life, here's a, here's a great word, make your whole life a sacristy. Right? Amen, right? Make your whole life a sacristy. That is, let your whole life be a holy of holies in fellowship with the God who has so freely loved you in this way. 
Isn't that wonderful? I love Thomas Watson. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of this calling with which you've been called. Romans 12.1, present in light of his mercies and the grace that he's shown you in Christ, present to him your bodies as a living sacrifice, not just your heart, not just your mind. Let the body that God has given you be a means of worshiping him. Offering to him a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is your spiritual service of worship. So, are you using those eyes in a way that is worthy of the mercy that God has had on you, has demonstrated toward you? Are you using your hands to do things that, that, are, that is worthy of this calling that God has placed upon you? We could go on. But that's the only right response to sovereign grace. It's to give yourself wholeheartedly back to the God who has been so gracious. And if that is not at all the kind of life that you want to present back to God for his grace, then you have not yet tasted of the Lord's salvation. Number two, second way we ought to respond. Settle your hearts on the unshakable, unremitting, sovereign grace of God. Settle your hearts on the unshakable, unremitting, sovereign grace of God. The same grace that chose so freely to give you his son, to give you to his son, Right, That grace that drug you to his son with a liberated heart that could freely choose to come to Jesus because God the Father set you free. That is the same gracious purpose that, is de- that has determined to keep you through all eternity for the glory of his son. Right, Philippians 1.6, he who began that good work in you, what is he going to do? He's going to complete it. Is he going to falter in that? If he gave you to his son, are you going to somehow find yourself removed from his grasp? Is there anything in your life that you will ever be able to do to cause God the Father to turn his back on you if he has given you to his son so that you would be saved? No, never. This is Jude. This is Jude uh, verse 1. You, if you have been called by God, then you have been loved by God the Father and you will be kept For Jesus Christ's sake, he will keep you. And so take heart in light of that truth and live boldly in that grace. Live your life boldly in the grace of God that's been shown to you in Jesus. Don't live your life in timid fear, thinking that somehow God won't receive you or you're not pleasing enough in the eyes of your Father. Simply own the fact that you and yourself are not pleasing in the eyes of your Father, but that was never the condition by which he set his love upon you. The condition was Jesus. The condition was his own love. The condition was his own decision to save you. Let that cause you to live boldly. So when you pray, pray as if you are coming to your heavenly Father, not coming before your eternal judge. When you live your life, live your life with a heart that's filled with love for your heavenly Father who has made you his child. Don't live your life in such a way that you are trying to become his child by being good enough. No, live in grace. And then let me add to that, die boldly in grace. 
the same grace of God that made the gospel come alive to you earlier on in your life will be the grace that carries you freely and faithfully through death. He began it. He will complete it. And that step of death, that's just one step into the eternal glory that Jesus Christ has purchased for you with his blood. So live boldly. Settle your hearts on the unshakable, unremitting, sovereign grace of God. Now, thirdly, if you are in this room and you are not sure whether you have been drawn by the Father to the Son, then this passage gives an encouragement to you as well. If you are not sure that the Father has given you to his Son or drawn you to his Son or taught you to come to his Son, then the encouragement for you is not to let this teaching become an excuse for your unbelief. If your life shows a pattern of unwillingness to submit to the will of Christ, if your life shows this pattern of an inability to let go of your sin and a lack of satisfaction in the things of the Lord, then what are you to do? Are you to conclude by that? Well, maybe I'm not among the elect. I can't do anything until God moves supernaturally upon me, so I guess I just have to live passively, you know, satisfying my own sinful desires until the Lord moves. Isn't that what the doctrine of election leaves with me? My friend, I hope that's not the way you respond to the teaching of election because that's not the intention of God in making it known to us. You do need to feel your helplessness in the presence of God as a result of this teaching. You need to, you need to feel your utter helplessness in the presence of God to save yourself and then you need to let that feeling drive you to Christ. You need to go to Him. You need to seek the Lord with helplessness until He comes to save you. Now listen to me. If you are not sure that you are among the elect, if you are not sure that the Father has brought you to His Son, then this is what you need to do. You need to renounce the sin in your life and you need to run to Jesus until He tells you that He welcomes you. <sighs> That's what he calls each one of us to do in his scriptures. We are to strive to enter into the narrow door, right? Not sit outside and wait for someone to carry us in. We are to strive to enter into the narrow door. We are to wrestle with God and we are to refuse to let him go until he blesses us. Right? Had Jacob not chosen to wrestle with God and not let him go until God blessed him, what would he have missed out on? You too are called to wrestle with the Lord until he blesses you. With a defiant resilience that says, no, I will not let you go until you come and you bless me. You are to seek the Lord while he may be found. You are to call upon him while he is near. You are to forsake the wicked ways that you have been entrenched in. And you are to turn to the Lord in light of the promise that he says, I will heal you. 
You are to go and reason together with the Lord. You are to take the words of Psalm 119 and saying, I am yours, save me. You commit yourself to God. You say, I'm yours no matter what happens. And I'm asking you, save me, Lord. Save me. I don't know if you've ever been brought to that point in your life where you're willing simply to lay down before the Lord and say, Lord, my life. I I came to this point in deep struggle over assurance of whether or not I'm a true believer years ago. And the Lord brought me to this point where I had nothing left to give in, in, in response or in prayer back to the Lord other than to say, Lord, I want to be saved I want your name to be glorified, but if I end up in hell at the end of the road, I'm still going to live my life for you. Have you been brought to that point? We're in consideration. Even if you wind up in hell at the end of the road, you still find Christ to be worthy of your entire life. We have no promise in Scripture that says that will ever happen to anyone who wants to come to Jesus or wants to be saved. No no declaration that anyone who wants to come to Jesus will ever wind up in hell. But have you ever come to that point in your own heart? If you're not sure that you are a believer, then you are to continue calling upon the name of Christ until he shows you that he hears you. Right? You are to continue... uh, Asking to be saved until he answers. You are to keep seeking until you find him. You are to keep knocking until he opens that door to you. You are to be the widow pleading with God as though you were pleading with an unrighteous judge. You are to be pleading with the Lord. Lord, give me justice. Give me grace. You're to get rid of your idols. You're to repent of sin. And you are to recognize that it is time to seek God's face. Today is the day of salvation. So do not harden your heart against the Lord. Go seek Him until He saves you. Does that resonate with any of you? I hope so. I hope so. Election is never an excuse not to seek the Lord. You don't believe you're a believer? You go seek His face until He saves you. Now, if you can hear all of the biblical exhortations that I just read off and your heart throbs at the thought of pursuing Christ like that, then today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. Rise up in those spiritual stirrings and go seek the Lord. But if you hear what I just said to you and you think to yourself, oh, that's too hard. That's beyond what I'm willing to do. Then, my friend, you ought to tremble in fear. The thought of being outside of Christ and all that that entails ought to set you quivering and shaking down to your soul. To think of what it means for God to pass you by. What it means to be absorbed, not in life eternally, but in wrath eternally. To be consumed by the second death in the lake of fire. To think about what that means to be separated from from the presence of God and from, from the power of His might. That ought to cause you to tremble and quake with fear. To shake you out of your indifference. 
Don't, don't play games with Christ. If you don't know this about me yet, you, you ought to know. I don't want to play games with Jesus. That's why I preach the way I preach. Because these are truths that you need to hear. Yes, they're going to cut. They're going to be hard. And I'm going to say them in ways that are difficult for you to hear. I get that. But don't you understand that all of your life is meant to be given to Jesus? Every bit of it. Do you give it to Him? Are you willing to go give everything to Him, to lay it all on the line, to leave it on the field and say, Lord, I want at the end of my life, I want to slide into that casket with no tread on my tires. I want to be used by You. I want my candle to be at its very last moment of burning for Your glory when I go to be with You in heaven. Is that You? Don't play games with Christ. Jesus says to everyone indiscriminately in Matthew eleven twenty-seven 27 to 28, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus is the one in control of revealing to you the Father. And what does Jesus call everyone to do in light of that reality? 11.27, he says, no one, knows the, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him, he gets to verse 28 and he says, therefore, come to me. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're not sure that you're a believer... In this room, you don't know that the Father is drawing you or you're not among the elect. You've got one option. You take heed to Jesus' words and you go to him. You come to him and you wait for him to reveal the Father to you. So don't spurn Christ's promise of grace while the promise of entering his grace remains. You don't need to ask, am I among the elect or not? You need to ask, am I willing to come to Christ? If you're willing, then take heart and go seek his face and get assurance in knowing that he has saved you. Let's pray together. Father, so much to be said, Lord, and so much can be said in an unhelpful way, but I sure love you. And I hope in your faithfulness, Lord. We all are hopeful in light of your faithful promises, Lord, that you will give your people to your Son. You will draw them to your Son. You will teach them to come to your Son. And they will come. And they will be secure forever. Help us live in thankfulness to you, Lord, in light of who you are and what you've done. Help us, if we're not sure, to seek your face until we find you. It is time to seek the Lord. Let all of us in this room be among those who seek you diligently. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.